All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for a day to rejoice in your peace, a peace that your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has given us. Thank you, Father, for loving us the way you do, for it is unfathomable to comprehend fully, but your faithfulness is beyond human comprehension, beyond anything we could ever dream of, far beyond our own abilities. We pray, Father, that this morning's message find our souls humble and open, that the truth being spoken here in this wonderful church make its way to the deepest recesses of who and what we are. We pray also that those unable to be with us for whatever reason receive this message with full impact so that they too might be delivered. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. And may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, we are part 57 of the Gospel, Salvation and Sanctification. I uh, can't stress it enough. If you're not getting the lessons, it's really important uh, for continuity's sake that you get all the lessons. That's why we go through all this trouble uh, of you know, having a wonderfully architected and maintained website. It's not, you know, it may seem flawless behind the scenes, but it's not. It takes a lot of work. It's a well-oiled machine. There's discipline in view, but discipline in of itself is work. If I lose sleep at night, if one of the deacons lose sleep at night, it's not because of the message necessary. It's all the other details of making sure that that message, the pristine objective, is preserved moving forward, that it's done right. It's all the little things. So discipline in of itself is a big deal, folks. Leading, leading is taxing. And to do it right the way we do it at this church, the way you're blessed by it, <coughs> it takes a lot of work. And so if we're going to go through all that work on your behalf, it behooves you to take advantage of that work. That's called God's grace. And if you don't take advantage of God's grace, then what have I been teaching? Well, first of all, you have an arrogance issue. Because humility pursues God's grace that way, boldly, aggressively even. Uh, DJ, can you shut that back door? Um, these things are the things that he's been teaching. These are the sort of underlying principles behind so much of what he's saying. And look, it's one thing to learn the doctrines. It's another thing to live the spiritual life, to live the gospel reality, to live by means of his grace. All these things are interconnected, so don't so make them real in your life. Don't do that thing that so many people do, uh, and they sort of um, come to church, they play a little game, and then they leave, and it has no bearing on their lives. Anyways, our opening theme from this past week has been consistent up here on the board. We've been synthesizing an awful lot. Obviously, I mean, part 57 is an awful lot in front of us. There's been an awful lot put on the table. So it makes sense that we're synthesizing quite a bit. And just to keep our thoughts elevated to the big picture, what does it mean to live the gospel reality? We're going to talk about life a little bit this morning. 
What does it mean to live? That word live, it's a dynamic word, isn't it? I mean, you don't just say, you know, I live and then some academic. No, you live. You, you live by driving here this morning. You live by sitting down and drinking your coffee. You live by eating. You live by all the things that you've done. That's called living. Living is dynamic. It's animated. So what does it mean to live in the gospel reality? What does that mean? And how does this compare to, say, living the spiritual life? Knowing there's a spirit, knowing you have a human spirit, knowing that God the Holy Spirit can speak to that human spirit, to the deep recesses of your soul even. What does that mean? Are these different or one and the same concept? Romans 15, 13 and 19 in view. Here's an excerpt from the passage since we have already visited that this past week up here on the board. Romans 15, Paul says, But I have written very boldly, to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God. So Paul's very bold, not in himself. He says, same guy, I am what I am by the grace of God. Because of the grace. Very bold, because of the grace. And so that's what we've been queuing in on. For starters, because of the grace, Paul understood completely that his strength was never from himself, Rather, it was by the grace of God. Any boldness that he exhibited in life, living the spiritual life, a la Romans 15, 15, was founded on this very fact. The point is that any mode or description regarding living is a function of God's grace. It should be. Whether it's living the gospel reality or living the spiritual life or living life. However you'd like to describe your animation in time, we live by grace. Grace is living. Next, we considered Paul's words regarding how he tapped God's grace up here on the board, verse 18 in Romans 15. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. So the practical reality of this is that even our day-to-day conversations with the Lord God ought to be bold. Why? Because you're in Christ. Because of the promises of God. Because His grace never fails. And that's what humility realizes. That's what the Word of God describes to us beyond the shadow of any doubt. Grace is bold, strictly speaking then. Therefore, we ought not be riddled with the disease, better known as false humility. We ought not be riddled with that disease known as false humility up here on the board. False humility is nothing more than covert arrogance in full bloom. That's a reference to a new book titled Covert Arrogance, which is again coming soon. These are the types of angles that I take into Scripture to discover what false humility actually looks like. Because there's a lot of people, I bet you right now, I know so, people listening to my voice right now do not realize how much false humility, how much covert arrogance they actually have. How much of that has actually been instituted in their own lives. Not your doctrines, your lives. How you apply those things to time how you go through time living 
there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be like this. When they read it. This is what Monica's telling me anyways. There's a lot of people out there that don't realize how arrogant they truly are. So false humility is nothing more than covert arrogance in full bloom. Saying things like, you know, quote, well, I don't want to bother God with that issue is about as off as a person can get. It's arrogance in the sense that it assumes responsibility for God's work. What do you mean you don't want to bother God with that? What do you think, he runs out of little chits? This is, this is like your friend? This is like your parents? This is like your kids? This is like people? That somehow, I'm fed up, enough, enough, enough. Give me some space here. God doesn't say, give me some space. He never says that. And true humility realizes this. True humility would never say, I don't want to bother God with that issue. True humility says, I want to, quote, unquote, bother God with every issue. It's arrogance in the sense that it assumes responsibility for God's work. This issue for many so-called Christians is that their religion has blinded them from this basic truth about living by grace, living the spiritual life. In other words, they don't go to God for everything. Their religion says, I have a play in this. Isn't that what religion is? Creature credit. I have something to do with my own salvation and my own sanctification. I'll save myself a little bit every day, and I'll sanctify myself a little bit every day. God can have the big problems, but I'll even do these little ones. I don't want to bother God for everything. That's arrogance. And it's tucked away, and we call it covert, as opposed to overt, which is outward. Covert, hidden away. Arrogance. They believe that the more mature they become, the less they will need to rely on God's help. Almost like growing up and out of a household. I mean, that's what happens when we grow up, right? We, well, theoretically, we're supposed to grow up and out of the household, and we lean less and less on our parents, let's say. Well, God's not like that. That's human thinking. That's human rationalism. So religious people believe that the more mature they become, the less they will need to rely on God's help. Almost like growing up and out of a household, but that couldn't be further from the truth. The proper perspective is that the more mature a person becomes, the more they rely on God for absolutely everything. So much so that even something like bending over to tie one's shoe is laced with gratitude. Because guess what, folks? Some people can't physically do it. So if you, can, if you bent over today, unless you're like me and you have the strapless kind, shoelaceless kind. If you bent over today and tied your shoe, you ought to be grateful. Truth be told. There are a lot of attitudes and accepted forms of, quote, godliness that aren't actually godliness at all. Something Paul alluded to elsewhere in Scripture. Go to 2 Timothy 3.1. 2 Timothy 3.1. So there's a lot of, quote, unquote, godliness, you know, Godliness is the Greek word eusabia. Eusabia, in short, means living the spiritual life. It was the name of our first church, if you remember, Eusabia Bible Church, living the spiritual life. The problem is people are all 
screwed up about what godliness actually is. And if you're screwed up about what godliness actually is, then you don't live the spiritual life the right way. And God isn't pleased with that. And that's an issue of humility and arrogance. If you think you still have a part in your own sanctification, in your own ability to live the spiritual life, you might need to step back. 2 Timothy 3.1 But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, a form of it. It's sort of a perverted version. There might even be some truth in it, but a little leaven leavens the whole lump, remember, so says Scripture. So they hold to a form of godliness. We don't know precisely exactly what was going on in Paul's day to the T, but we can certainly relate to the laundry list he just gave us, because that almost describes our own society, doesn't it? So these people, these religious people, they kind of hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. And the key point here this morning up here on the board is they have denied its power. The underlying issue with religion is that it never delivers a person from sin to righteousness. That's what deliverance is. That's how we've been sort of encapsulating the movement of sanctification, right? From sin to righteousness. Salvation from sin, sanctification to righteousness. Two sides of the same coin, they're guaranteed at salvation. The problem with religion is that it never delivers a person from sin to righteousness because it denies the only power in the universe able to do so, which is God's. That's the problem with religion. The problem with religion is that man gets involved. I got it, God. I'm good. Thanks so much for the cross, but I'll take it from here. It's quite possible that there are more so-called, quote, Christians nowadays that cling to a false religion than there are true believers. I actually believe there's some viability. It's possible that there are more Christians than believers. I'm not God, so I'm not going to put a stick in the mud on the subject, but the point should be obvious Religion is a plague. Religion is a plague. It undermines the grace of God at every turn, frustrating His plan for unbelievers and believers alike. Now, I want to reflect for a moment, and I'm going to withhold names to protect the innocent, so to speak. I've been thinking about the fact that the largest religion in our local area holds to doctrines that are literally... Not kind of, not sort of, literally opposed to the Bible. Yet, if you were to ask their members, do we have the same God? We have to at least respond, well, that depends. That depends. It depends on whether or not you religious people actually believe your own church's doctrines. Because if you do and that's all you've ever believed, then salvation is still an issue. And we may indeed be worshiping different gods. 
Now that makes people uncomfortable, but too bad. We either want to be right about the gospel, or we don't. Do we want to fall in line with the rest of the morons in this world? Or do we want to stand up for Jesus Christ? Do you want to stand up for truth or a lie? Do you want to conciliate, make Uncle Jimmy happy? Oh, I don't want to stir the pot. Or do you want to stand up for Christ as an ambassador for Christ? You know like the Bible says? Hold your thumb. Let's drive this point home for a moment. John 19.30. John 19.30. So I've been thinking a lot about this situation that we find ourselves in. We're this little beacon of light on a hill in Dighton. Teaching truth, pumping it out. Day after day after day. Recording the messages. Putting them on uh, local uh, TV stations even. Doing uh, Greg Does podcasts. So that people can subscribe on their iPods. And get the lessons via uh, audio only on their iPads. And uh, iPhones and and, uh, iPods. These things are all part of what we do. Because we do stand for Christ here. And we are bold. We're not all, oh, we're bold. I don't know. Anthony's like, I would never do that. He's like, look at me. I am the Italian stallion. Part Indian. He's like, I would never do that. John 19.30 Therefore, when Jesus had received... The sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's tetelestai, folks, up here on the board. It is finished from tetelestai in the Greek, used in ancient times regarding the complete satisfaction of a financial debt. For example, on receipts for taxes. In context, refers to the completion of the work of redemption. Think of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 as well. So in context, refers to the completion of the work of redemption. In other words, Jesus Christ said, from the lips of our Lord and Savior, it is finished. For the joy set before me, I completed this good work, canceling out the debt against you. Remember that. Jesus wasn't mistaken when he uttered his final words. He wasn't saying, it is finished. But, but, and this is where religion comes in. Religion always injects creature credit or works, man's human works, into the equation. This is what Satan specializes in. He wants people to say, but... And whole religions have been built on. But, whole religions, and people love religions. People will pay through the nose for it. They will pay for it. I'm telling you right now. If I started teaching strains of religion, we'd see all kinds of people all of a sudden be like, wow, this is crazy. This place is growing. Yeah, it's growing. It's ugly. Because people are willing to pay for religion. So do not ever be impressed by the height of a cathedral or a spire or anything like that. 
He wasn't saying it, it is finished, but yet this massive religion in our area says that if you murder someone or commit suicide, you cannot be saved. Or if you're saved and then you murder someone or commit suicide, that somehow you can lose your salvation. It is finished. Either it's finished and Jesus is who he says he was, or it's not and he's a liar. And if Jesus Christ is a liar, what are we doing here? We might as well throw this entire thing out if Jesus is a liar. What's wrong with people? What's wrong with people is they like religion. What's wrong with people is they are arrogant to the core. So this religion says these things about murder, suicide, that you can lose your salvation, as if some sins weren't paid for on the cross. Okay, then I ask, where's the line? Who drew the line? The dude with the big hat. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Who's that? Well, he likes to act like God. He says that he's more important than the Bible. He says, I can rewrite the Bible. Jesus Christ, who is the Word, Logos, John 1.14, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Some dude can't come in and say, I changed the Bible. Because he'd be changing Jesus Christ. You see how it goes? So you have to ask yourself, what, well, then what Bible are these people using? Not ours. If they are, they're being selective about it. Okay, everybody, God came down to me last night in a dream. And he said, Pastor Ed, I think you're ready. You can change the Bible. <laughs> you guys are laughing because it's stupid. But that's what people like to believe in. That's blasphemy and in direct contradiction with the Holy Scriptures, my friends. Go to Galatians 2.21. Galatians 2.21. In other words, if you're able to do something to save yourself, or do something to sanctify yourself, what does that say about Jesus? What did, it, what did he say when he, what did he, what was he mean when he said, it is finished then? Galatians 2.21 I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. That's what it means. If man has anything to do with salvation or sanctification, at least the sourcing of it, we'll get to some details later, then what did Christ die for? I mean, if man could somehow bridge the gap, then Christ died needlessly up here on the board. Possibly the greatest insult to the person and work of our Lord, Jesus Christ, that any human could suggest, yet that is exactly what any religion claiming certain sins were not paid for on the cross are suggesting. Yeah. So what does that say about the body of doctrines that these religions cling to. What does it say about the members of those churches then? If this is what they believe, then they cannot believe that. They'll tell you they believe that. They'll tell you they believe in Jesus Christ. But they're living a lie. Anybody can say. I could get a, if I gave an unbeliever, a devout atheist, 
a million dollars right now. I said, I'll give you a million dollars if you go on, somehow you find out how to get on public television and just pronounce that you believe in Jesus Christ. You know what they're going to do? Give me the million bucks. I'm going on television. You can say anything you want to appease yourself, your friends, your family. You can say anything you want. But God is not mocked. You see, arrogance hasn't changed its position after 2,000 years. And if we're still here for another 2,000, guess what? It'll still be the same. It'll still be the same. False humility. Religion is nothing more than institutionalized arrogance, a.k.a. false humility. That's what religion is, institutionalized arrogance. Let's all agree on one way or, or similar ways in which we're arrogant, similar ways in which we want to save ourselves and sanctify ourselves. Let's make our own doctrines, even though they have nothing to do with the Bible. Let's make our own doctrines. We'll all agree upon this thing. We'll institutionalize it. We'll erect a building. We'll put the cross on the top. We'll tell everybody it's all about Jesus when it's not. We'll do all this thing. We'll institutionalize it. And then we'll call each other humble. Watch well, you the humble chap. Look at you in your Sunday best. <laughs> Anthony's like, I don't do that either. Just for the record. <laughs> That's false humility. Religion is not the more institutionalized arrogance. And then all they have to do is just use the right language and it's all good. Back to where we began, go to 2 Timothy 3.5. 2 Timothy 3.5. 5. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these up here on the board. So you're going to have false teachers, in other words, who are peddling these lies who lead religious people towards spiritual death even. They have denied its power. The underlying issue with religion is that it never delivers a person from sin to righteousness because it denies the only power in the universe able to do so, God's. Therefore, religion is a plague. Religion, as we, as uh, all will realize in this world, whether being judged at the great white throne or at the bema seat, religion will be identified as a primary source of trickery, a scheme used by the devil himself to keep unbelievers unsaved. Again, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Uh, Hebert on 2 Timothy 3.5 up here on the board. It is the fearful portrayal of an apostate Christendom, a new paganism masquerading under the name of Christianity. It's just a portrayal, folks. People have, in other words, if Christianity, let's assume for a moment, was purer back in the early church, the church itself as an organism, little c maybe, because it's not saved people, let's just call it the church, has morphed, has branched off, has become apostate. Has le- Remember what I taught you on apostasy. Apostasy is leaving the faith behind. You've seen it, you've gotten it, 
the church saw it, they got it in the early church. It's where the name Christians came from. But now what is Christianity? I don't even want to be called a Christian anymore. Why? Because the whole thing is perverted. Because there's more Christians, I believe, that are possibly unsaved than saved. People believe whatever they want to believe nowadays. It's unbelievable. And as long as we institutionalize it, well, I guess we're all right. It's unbelievable the things that they're trying to shove down our throats as facts. And they'll, they'll fight you tooth and nail, but they don't have any Bible. They have nothing in the Bible. So-and-so told me, the dude with the big hat, he went on television and lied. It's disgusting. It's evil. It's satanic. But yet, there's Christ somehow portrayed in these religious institutions filled with all kinds of abhorrent arrogance. That's where God has placed our little church. In the middle of that. And what's the word say? Beacon on a hill. Beacon on a hill. Let your light shine. Now let's give this passage an even greater meaning to our studies for the remainder of it was the topic of some pretty involved soul-searching recently, remember? Look at verse 6. Remember, we spent a fair amount of time on this. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Remember our good labor on weak women? And Paul's confrontation and scorn regarding why some people are weak? I hope you see it in a greater light now. Weak women are actually the covertly arrogant in this world. In other words, if it wasn't their fault, Paul wouldn't be scorning them. But they're the weak women. So the weak women are actually the covertly arrogant in this world while they moan and groan about never being able to catch a break in this life. They have denied God's power, even subscribed to various forms of religion in their souls, whether formally or informally. Remember, I've taught you that as well. Religion is a concept. It doesn't have to have a steeple and, you know, documentation and a website and, you know, formal ordination ceremonies and all this kind of thing. It doesn't have to have that. Everyone in here has some little religious shrine in their soul that nobody else knows about except God. Some little works program that they've built up that they say, no, no, I'm good, God. I got this pot. I'm good here. I'm over here self-sanctifying. <laughs> you know. That was me hoeing the field. Guys, <laughs> like, what's he doing? Is he dancing now? Yeah. So, so I roll. <laughs> These people are perfect examples of the fruit of arrogance. That's why Paul used the Greek that he did as we've seen previously, to describe those being regularly led astray by false doctrines and teachers. The remedy, which is the one that I closed the Covert Arrogance book with, true humility. You want to be delivered from these things? Look, if you figure out that you're covertly arrogant, you've got areas of your soul that are, you're just discovering exist now, little religions that you didn't realize were actually there, fine. Seeing it all is truth, right? This is how we're delivered. You have to be able to see it in the first place. Well, this is what he's doing. The remedy? Humility. 
True humility, not that false garbage. An interaction with God that involves an openness and honesty and even an undeniable boldness with Him. Arrogance says, Oh shucks, don't worry about little old me, God. Whereas humility says, Show me grace. Show me grace. Blow my socks off. I'm ready. I'm available. I'm here. See, that's what humility looks like. I'm going to take myself out of the way. Let's see what God can do. Arrogance says, I'm going to leave myself in the way. And I'll use God like a utility program on a computer. I don't use that. Everybody's like, what? (laughs) I'll use God like a spare wrench. Or I'll, I'll say, hey God, hand me a screwdriver. Or I'm the surgeon. Scalpel, please. Excuse me, God, you're getting in my light. I'll surgically remove the things from my own life. Thank you very much. What does Scripture say? James 4, 6, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well, grace, practically speaking, means you're going to get delivered sooner than later. You understand? You're going to open up the floodgates to grace if you're humble. But if you're arrogant, you're going to frustrate that thing. Now, pulling this together, since we are still focused on sanctification in our studies right now, we might add Jesus' own words to the mix. Go to Matthew 25, 29. Matthew 25, 29. Since we're talking about sanctification, since we're talking about receiving grace, I taught a series on what it means to receive grace about a couple years ago. But God only gives grace to the humble, right? So this is the point. Matthew 25, 29, For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Well, that's a parable that Jesus spoke. So, if you're humble, you get more and more and more and more. If you're arrogant, the the whole mechanism, if you would, shuts down. Again, I'll give you the James 4, 6 in the Amplified. But he gives us more and more grace through the power of the Holy Spirit to defy sin and live an obedient life that reflects both our faith and our gratitude for our salvation. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud and haughty, but continually gives the gift of grace to the humble who turn away from self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. That's almost an analog with religion. Self-righteousness. Same thing. I'm going, what is, okay, sanctification, what? To righteousness. Self-righteousness then means that you're going to sanctify yourself. You're going to take the ball from God and sanctify yourself. To ferret out false humility, a.k.a. arrogance, a little more, we have the notion of misguided grace orientation. To a person functioning in creature credit, grace makes zero sense because they think in terms of, quote, silver bullets or chits, you know, someone's keeping score, in other words, and finite currency. That is in direct violation of what we just read in Matthew 25, 29 and the analog in Luke 19, 26. First is of the talent, parable of talents. The second is the parable of the minors. But it's the same principle. 
to get really practical then, since that's what we're after, I mean, this is all great, the fundamentals are great, but we want to know, what does it mean? That's why he's starting off. What does it mean to live the gospel reality? What does it mean to live the spiritual life? What does it mean to live as a believer? So practical sanctification. Sanctification, or reasonably technical term, is really about learning how to live life Live a life of confidence in Christ, a life of peace with the Spirit's encouragement, and a sense of reality in the gospel truth. In brief, sanctified means focusing on Jesus Christ to the point that everything else fades to the background. I really, honest, I'm going to say this, I am the shepherd here, I'm filled with the Spirit, I'm going to say that I really don't care how many Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic words you know, how many passages of Scripture you even have memorized. I want to know, do you love Jesus Christ? Is that your coming and going in life? Is He the first and the last person in your life? Is He your love, your great love? That's what I want to know. There's a point of caution worth noting here that I'll approach in a roundabout way. I, really, I usually don't make you do this, but I'm going to ask you to do it because it should be obvious what he's saying. Raise your hand if you've ever loved someone. All right. Keep your hands ra- Hey! <laughs> Keep your hands raised if you have ever been loved. That's everyone. Okay, you can put your hands up. I just want to make sure everybody was convinced that they've loved and been loved. Now, I want you to think about how. How have you loved? Or how you have loved and or how you have been loved. Just think about it. You personally. How have you loved and how have you been loved? Is it fair to say that everyone else who has loved that person that you've loved has loved them the exact same way? Is that a fair statement? Likewise, is it fair to say that everyone who has loved you personally has loved you with the exact same love? Of course not. That's ridiculousness. Well, then why would we suggest that we're all going to love Jesus Christ the same way? Or that His love for us will be expressed the same way for all of us? Why would we suggest that? So driving this home, simply synthesize these two verses. I want to challenge you for a moment. Why would we expect the way that we love Jesus is the exact same as someone else? Or vice versa? I want you to synthesize a couple of things up here. Just scripture, too. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, the whole world, that's everyone, believers, unbelievers, everyone, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now compare that with Romans 9.21 that says, Well, does not the potter have a right over the clay, God's the potter, to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Does he not? He loved the whole world, but yet it's different. He expresses himself differently to different people. Is that fair to synthesize? I think so. It's obvious, isn't it? So the same God who loves also expresses himself differently in that same love. God is love, so it's not like he suspends it. So what might we conclude? Is it fair to say that God chooses to express his love differently to his creatures? Indeed. Of course. 
Is it fair to assume then that we all express our love differently towards him? Of course. The point is, well, the point of this little sidebar is simply a balance statement up here on the board. It's a caution statement. Sophomores, wise morons, are famous for making personal experiences with sanctification absolute doctrine. In other words, God loves me this way, and this happens in my life, and I realize this, and if this doesn't happen in your life, he must love you less. Or I love God so much that this is what I do. I, do, I express myself this way as an expression of my love for God. And if you don't express it the way I express it, you must love God less. So what the religious person wants to say is, oh, we, oh. I don't know, that's, not, that's Frankenstein and the monkeys from <laughs> Wizard of Oz coming together into one drone. Oh, we, oh. Right? This is what religion wants. They want a bunch of like carbon copies. And if you're not a carbon copy of what? The dude with the hat? Who, who are you supposed to, who's, then who's the carbon copy? Who's the original? Who's the blue? Remember the, remember the mimeograph machine that stunk like the high heavens in the school? Nobody? Remember that? Who's the, who's the, who's the uh, prototype? The dude selling lies in churches? The dude putting people into bondage? That's what they'll have you believe. Who is it? If we're all supposed to be alike, who is it? If we're supposed to abandon any sense of individuality as so-called Christians, then, then you tell me, who is it supposed to be? Because the guys that were supposed to, the, the people who prof, or propose those types of systems, they don't look anything like Jesus. If we're going to be like anyone, if we're going to aspire to be anything like anyone, I suppose it would be Jesus. But even Jesus said, hey, listen, you don't have my cross. You don't have my life. You have your own cross. You have your own life. So these sophomores, these wise morons, are famous for making personal experiences with sanctification absolute doctrine. The more assertive then impose their doctrines upon others, stifling the spiritual growth of others. But God made his children individually. So, practically speaking, learn what it means to be an individual in Christ. In other words, if we're going to do all this talk, all this study about living the gospel reality, living the spiritual life, what worse way to blow that whole thing up than to say, I'm going to try to be like Mike. I'm going to try to be like this person. Or I'm going to try to be like that person. How are you going to live your life if you're trying to be like somebody else? That's where religion just blows everything up. So learn what it means to be an individual in Christ. Go home tonight and say, you know what? It is true. God loves me. I mean, seriously. He, say, you can say it to yourself right now. If nobody else, in the, that's why, if anybody refused to, if anybody put their hand down, have you ever been loved? I would have said, I love you. Minimally. And then after that, if you don't believe that, God loves you, which is really what's important. You have to say to yourself, you know what? Look in the mirror and say, man, I was an idiot yesterday. For real. And say, oh, man, was I an idiot. But you love me, don't you? And he'll say every single time, yep, I made you. I made you. I love you. You are an idiot. <laughs> Let's talk about confession. 
Not to some dude in a hat or a collar. Let's talk about confession with me. How about we, you and I just agree on a few things, huh? Yeah, last night was a wash. <laughs> That's practical sanctification. That's what it means to be real. That's what it means to be humble. Religion tries to force its hand, take a bunch of different shapes and force it to a square hole. What's uglier than that? So learn what it means to be an individual in Christ and appreciate your life. You're still breathing. Up here on the board, more on practical sanctification. Being sanctified in Christ means understanding the depths of His love for you as an individual, for you are wonderfully made. I didn't say that. Psalm 139.14 says that. You are wonderfully made. That is coupled with understanding that you are to relate to others from this uniqueness that is you. Yeah, you're a weirdo. <laughs> Join the crowd. Don't get much weirder than this guy. You're a weirdo too, so there. And God made you that way. Why? God only knows. <laughs> so learn to live your life in Christ. You are wonderfully made. Everybody screws up. Everybody makes mistakes. But as far as Scripture says, it's a lot easier to sanctify you if you're at a place of peace and rest with yourself knowing that God loves you, than it is to become all kinds of religious and try to jam you, shoehorn you into some ridiculous set of doctrines that stifle you living your, in your own individuality. That's what religion does. It's a game. You know why? Because no matter what happens, it's like the, the wicked stepsisters in Cinderella. They try to jam their foot in the slipper, but it ain't ever going to fit, is it? Nobody with me? Anthony's like, another miss, because I don't watch Cinderella. Right? People are going to try to jam you in. They're going to, you know. You have to learn what it means to be you and be comfortable. It's from that position. Nothing worse than a phony, right? I, can't, I have no time for phonies. People come, oh. Uh. <laughs> nope, yep, yep, I'll be a phony too. Oh, I, uh. So bad that they'll run away. That guy's a phony. Yeah. Good, don't ever come back near me then. Learn to live your life. Learn to be who you are in Christ. It's from that position in the security of His love, knowing that He made you that way and loves you, even after He made you, you didn't go, oh, crap. He's like, oh, I was, oh, I got distracted. Oh, well, they're alive, so you're not some burden or some, you know, anomaly that God was distracted for a moment and He was making the clay and you came out. No, He made you precisely the way He wanted you, and He loves you after the fact. And then all together, we have to relate to one another because we collide. That's part of life. We comprise the dynamic spiritual life. But it's not very dynamic. It's not even exciting in my eyes. It's not even fun. 
if everybody's a bunch of oh well that's that's to me i think i don't think god's boring at all i think god's i think god's hilarious frankly i think god's not just loving i think he's fun i think he gives us joy i think we get to sit in the trenches together because life is a pain in the butt right i mean it really is but we get to laugh and we get to have a certain joy just like this your faces are beaming right now probably because he just reminded you that you're loved i don't know we get to have these times life is tough so we all have battle scars we've been shot at we've been clubbed over the head we've been mistreated we've mistreated ourselves probably most of the time but here we are that's the attitude that's the dynamic spiritual life this isn't about being a stiff this is about coming to some church and have some ball guy dress you down and say you you're terrible you need to be a wheel you need to be more like me now the bible says imitate my faith that has nothing to do with becoming ed collins thank god for you <laughs> seriously that has nothing to do with becoming me or like me it says imitate my faith that's very different, folks. But those are the perversions that people make religions out of. So there's this dynamic spiritual life. On Thursday, I asked you to dwell on the following up here on the board. More on practical sanctification. It is very important for you to feel a sense of individuality, but not a loss of connection with others. We did all that work on addiction, remember? The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. I believe that. I think that something's missing in an addict's life. Something. I don't know. It is very important for you to feel a sense of individuality, but not a loss of connection with others. So be yourself, but don't become an island. That's one of the other tricks that Satan's been using. People gather around a dinner table, and they're all in their... PDAs, or what, what do we call them, smartphones now, texting and viewing Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and God knows what else, emails and, you know, work websites. I don't know what else. These are all the good ones. It's very important for you to feel a sense of individuality, but not a loss of connection with others. So please do yourself a favor and dwell on this. I'm about halfway through my notes, and I'm almost out of time. We'll, drag, we'll, we'll push on a little bit to get all this because it's important. All of that front end is something that he's been revisiting each class this past week. And I believe with all my heart and soul that he's doing it so that you don't lose sight of the most important things. That it's wonderful to go into Scripture and ferret out details about salvation sanctification, glorification, propitiation, you want me to keep going, expiation, reconciliation. Some people are like, what is these things he's talking about? Reconciliation. You want me to keep going? No. Those are, those are important things for you to realize. But the most important things you cannot lose sight of because if you lose sight of the most important things, then you might as well just untether yourself. You're going to become an academic snob. You're going to become something that doesn't understand the first thing about the love of Christ. It's lost sight of their first love. 
become religious all over again. So don't lose the connection with others. Fight that tendency to be an island, so to speak. It doesn't mean you have to become an extrovert overnight. It just means learn what it means to relate to others. Relate to people firsthand, even if you think it's painful or work. Scott and I were talking about that the other day. What's the real work? What's the real work? Let me put a couple of things together with you. Matthew 28, uh, uh, 19, right? Start of the Great Commission, right? What is co-mission? Co means with, mission, okay? Who started the mission? Jesus Christ. What did he do? He related to others. He went into churches. He started the church, so to speak. Paul continued his good work. There was a mission in view. The mission included what? Other people. So our co-mission to go out and evangelize, to make disciples, to teach them, to baptize them even, our co-mission involves other people. So if you really want to know what the great labor, the great labor in this life is, it's actually doing that thing. It's actually relating to other people. Some of you are like, oh, man, I hate relating to other people. It's so much work. What did you say in that statement? It's so much what? Work. Oh. So maybe that's the great work in the spiritual life. Maybe it's not doing the carpets at church or, you know, standing behind a pulpit. Maybe the great work in the church is part of the commission. The great labor is actually relating to other people and either encouraging them one way or another. For as long as it's called what? Today, let us encourage one another. That's why I get so steamed at people who refuse to join a local assembly, who make up all these excuses as to why they're not part of a local assembly. Well, that guy, you know, I don't like that guy. What about the 50 people sitting there. Maybe they need your brand of encouragement that day. Maybe God doesn't care about how much you like that person. I'm not saying you go sit under someone who's teaching false doctrines. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there's a bigger picture here. I'm saying gathering together like this is part of the co-mission. Relating to each other is part of the co-mission. Co-mission. With who? Jesus Christ. So yeah, it might be work to relate to other people, but if you're not doing that work, then you're not fulfilling the commission on your life. Oh man, you had to bring that out. I was doing so well. You know, I've been doing these things, and you know, I started doing that, and I started doing this, and you know, I do all these things, but I'm a little island, and I just kind of like move through, and nobody notices me, and I just do my thing. But the great labor is what? Other people. What's harder, seriously? than a dynamic spiritual life. What's harder than to relate to other people at a personal level? Not much. You know why? Because you actually have to invest in them. You have to give them a little bit of you. They give you a little bit of them. Now you have a real relationship. Right? That's the real work. So you can thank Scotty for that one as well, because we were bouncing bouncing off each other, not physically. You know, we were like, hey, man, that was awesome. Whoa, yeah, it was awesome, dude. Yeah. Scott tried it, but I was like, dude. I pulled an Anthony. I'm like, I don't do that. Just saying. 
He's like, but I've been going to the gym, so you know. It's all good, Scott. It's true. Don't lose your connection with others. So do yourselves a favor and dwell on that. Go to Romans 1.16 quickly. I'll pick a spot and then we've got to close. We need to bring this back and I'm just going to give you some connective tissue. All of that is wonderful. Obviously that's the primary emphasis of this morning's study. But that is precipitated out of this good work. It's established, it's reaffirmed by the scripture that we've been noting regarding sanctification because all those principles are actually part of practical sanctification. Sanctification is... There's positional, there's experiential, and there's ultimate. I'm so smart. Yeah, but what does that mean to you? You know what I'm saying? There's understanding the doctrines and then there's understanding, well, what does that mean? So Romans 1.16, our primary course of study, we're going to attach ourselves, if you would, append ourselves to that great work. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Up here on the board, Romans 1.17 describes the essence of life for a true believer. A person being saved daily is a person who is being sanctified daily. The graphical way to look at that is really just this. I just put this big arrow. You're being saved from sin, sanctified to righteousness. Regardless of the tense or phase in view, tenses with salvation, phases with sanctification, positional, experiential, ultimately, it's the same flow. This is what it means. You're delivered from the bondage of sin judicially or positionally, from the bondage to righteousness, imputed righteousness, right? Experientially, from the power of sin to good fruit, in other words, imputed righteousness. That's deliverance in time. That's why we call it progressive or experiential sanctification. And then ultimately... Yay! Right? From the very presence of sin. No more sin. You're delivered up to complete righteousness. I venture to say perfect or perfected righteousness. Okay? That's the flow. That's what it means to be delivered. God's grace through faith delivers us from sin to righteousness. The overall process then might be called deliverance. I think I'm going to stop right there. I think I'm going to stop there, folks. Let me just get down to my notes here. As you can see, we had a lot more to go, didn't we? Oh. <clears throat> Who loves you? Wow, only Todd, huh? Todd's the only one that's loved in there. I have a lot of notes to go through. 20, well, actually another 10 pages after where we were at. Probably better if I do it this way. All right, ushers, put on the music, please.
Let me just read um, some scripture before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And Paul says, This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's a solemn note to step into the Lord's Supper, isn't it? So much of what we learned here this morning is on that very topic. That's what practical sanctification is all about. And from faith to faith, same writer, Romans 1.17, from faith, as we've learned, that has everything to do with the cross. What say you of the gospel? Do you live a life of gratitude? That's the heart that comes before this service. That's the one that's properly prepared to even partake in what we call communion service. The one that has a heart that is opened wide and reveals gratitude that's been laid bare. I mean, what are you going to say? What are you going to say seriously about your life? You, are, you and I both know our worth without him. You and I both know what it took to save us, what it takes to sanctify us. What right do we have? How can we possibly say that we have anything to do with this thing? Seriously. This is the heart that's full of gratitude. That's what living the spiritual life means. That's why I say things like, who cares if you know big, long, five-syllable words? Who cares? These are the things that are important. Hopefully, your heart has been moved this morning so that when we do uh, follow this command from our Lord, that we follow it with a humble heart. Amen? All right. <clears throat> For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, remembrance of our Lord. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, remembrance of his work. Let's drink the cup. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Someone get the lights, please.
Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for a time to fellowship together as family in the unity of the faith. We thank you for this church, this location, this country, and those who stand up to protect them. We thank you for ordaining a time in our lives when we are set aside to learn your marvelous word, Father. We are so very grateful for all that you do, but mostly for sending your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to die in our stead, to redeem us from the slave market of sin, to set us free forever and ever so that we will spend eternity with you. What an undeserved blessing. What grace. What love. Thank you. Pray that those not here this morning receive this message strong and true, regardless of the modality. We pray especially also that those still lost hear this message and all the preceding ones regarding the gospel. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit, that we do pray. Amen. Thank you.